Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. It's just really, really unbelievable. It's disgusting. It's abhorrent. I just can't believe that they will keep stringing you on like that day after day when there's nothing new. There's, for, first of all, there's hardly any difference between these people. If we're talking from a larger, you know, philosophical context, mm -hmm. we are not making a decision that is too divergent one route from the other and yet we're strung along feeling like our existence is being judged and scrutinized based on this decision and you just keep watching and yeah. nothing is happening and i think that's just really what i where i felt so betrayed i saw the ruse i could see it i could in, in my most cynical of selves i could see the the lack of anything being said the lack of any content and yet i was still drawn to keep watching it for some reason but i mean i mean that's just how i feel about the bachelor and the bachelor <laughs> I, I I don't know what else uh, that that could apply to. Yeah, I I was thinking something entirely different, but um, I guess that's you know. Uh... Yeah, it's like it's like <laughs> she you know she's like I I know there's already problems with I I haven't seen the whole season. I know there's already supposed to be problems with this Bachelorette. I yeah I tell, but like God, that is a lot of nothing that you can just keep showing people. And they keep watching. <laughs> uh, now, is the bachelor something <laughs> where they go to school to get their their uh, bachelor's degrees? Is that <laughs> is that what the show is about? I, I haven't seen it. Uh, I'm I'm gonna put I'm gonna put that joke on on the back burner for one second, and just like I'm imagining a world where if a woman got her bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. it would be called her bachelorette's degree, and just, oh, what a worse world. That's. For, oh. for once, I can glimpse the worst world when we're not in it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that, the bachelorette's degree. Jesus Christ. That's like the dudette thing. Where <laughs> dudette. I, do, gee, dudes and dudette. Can't it just be gender neutral? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah <sighs> I mean, a dude, yeah, a dude, dude's pretty gender neutral. I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, ladies and gentle them. <laughs> Welcome to our exhibit today at the Uncanny County Museum, where we are going to be talking about Americana. Ooh. I was born in the USA now. I love that song. First, uh, first album uh, mass-produced in the U.S. on CD. Really? Yeah. Huh. Did not know that. That's the boss, right? That's the boss. Interesting. But anyway, what were you going to say? 
I mean, who, who cares what I have to say? Anyways, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about uh, our idea of ourselves as Americans Ooh. through Americana, whether that is kind of used as a marketing ploy to sell denim jackets mm-hmm. or kind of a justification of manifest destiny, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think that the pendulum swings kind of either way uh, in-, in terms of uh, harmfulness. Uh, what, um, when you're abroad, uh-huh. what, you know, I, f- I feel like we still sometimes read, maybe me more than you, but we read as Americans when we are overseas. And I, I, I say that in part because you do have a, a EU passport and I Yeah, can't. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so quite literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what, um, what, what parts of kind of American style do you feel like you always will sort of have on you? Uh, for me, it's the denim jacket with pins. Mm-hmm. A flannel, because that's very American, I have mm-hmm. to say. Uh, different things that are more, uh, like like a Carhartt hat, for instance, would definitely, uh, yeah. be, anything Carhartt is for sure going to be American art student or American worker, <laughs> for sure. I don't think that that's made it into Europe yet because they're in some some sort of other kind of fashion line because the thing i always had to point out was americans are behind fashion wise than europe and not in a bad way just that it's a different style it's just a different Mm. aesthetic where we get what europe is dressing in six months to a year later yeah and but in some cases i think i hesitate to say there's a practicality to fashion but i think with Americans, I mean, if you're really talking about the Carhartt thing, you know, that's a recent enough development that, you know, I, mm-hmm. at least living out West, I knew enough people that, like, you know, actually had, you know, <laughs> hard labor jobs that wore Carhartt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a practical clothing brand. Yeah, like, like Carhartt has not fully gone through the transformation of, like, Levi's, you know? Where, yeah. It started very specifically as clothes of workers and then transitioned into capital F fashion. Yeah, accurate. One other thing I I have to point out, too, for how to spot an American abroad. If you are Mm -hmm. wearing a university sweatshirt and or clothing, baseball cap of any team, white leather (laughs) sneakers with a leather jacket. And or pajama pants or cargo shorts, you are for sure an American. If you fit that description, <laughs> that's up to you. <laughs> no, no, uh, hey, no, hey, but you know, yeah. that's literally the guy. Like, if you go to You're study really abroad, alienating our guests right now. I'm so, well, like I, I'm giving them the the guide that I was given when I went to go study abroad, which was do not wear any of these things because you will be targeted. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people wore those things. But hey, fashion's for everybody. Wear what you want, because it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah I mean, for me, like, you know, I, I tromp around in, like, my leather motorcycle jacket, even yeah. though I have never been on a motorcycle. Never? 
Yeah, no, I've never been on a motorcycle and <laughs> just a poser. Everywhere I've lived, I walk around in that leather motorcycle jacket. It's pretty dope though. <laughs> yeah. I got that in Colorado. Uh oh. the uh the outlet was having like I think the outlet stopped carrying that brand and huh. it was like dirt cheap for what it was and Dang. I, I I looked it up and it is like that brand is like normally like multiple hundreds of dollars. Ooh. So lucked out on that one. Hell yeah. Um I made one good <laughs> one good, <laughs> one good decision. Purchase. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well cuz like, you know, I living out west, I I I was a little late to the denim jacket. I was mm-hmm. late to getting back on the Adidas train. Growing up, I was yeah. very much a Vans guy. Uh, same, same like here. If I was if I was wearing a sneaker that mm-hmm. you know, wasn't for running, I I I'm not totally I like the, the Reeboks I like on other people. I don't think I would rock them. Hard agree. Yeah, I I don't think I'm after that particular aesthetic of the 80s. Um, But, you know, I like my patterned cowboy shirts. Um, You know, I I, I think there's enough kind of stuff that I try to take that I've seen and, you know, maybe elevate it just a little bit, give it a little twist. A little spice. To little kind spice of do my there. own thing with it. For sure. But, you know, I think I am, like, fairly... Even... I, I was always... It was always, like, a little ego boost in Italy if someone <laughs> walked up to you and asked you something in Italian, you know, because yeah. you were not immediately readable as Americans. Yes. Or <laughs> at least someone that you know, might not only speak English. Yeah, for sure. No, it's totally the best feeling in the world when they don't greet you in English. In any, I think yeah. in any country when you can kind of, you yeah. know, masquerade as somebody that fits in to this, mm-hmm. to this kind of society that you're living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sure, my sweater says made in Italy on the tag, but <laughs> I bought that in a Marshalls in New Jersey. Huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, someone someone asked me like, "Where did you get those shoes? They look so nice. You get those here in Italy?" And I'm like, oh. mm, "TJ Maxx." Uh, mm, there you go. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that those brown dress shoes that you have with really nice? Yeah, laces? yeah, the, like suede kind of, but they're kind of clunky on the bottom, so yeah. they're still kind of punk. I do like oh. those. Yeah, they're nice. They're a nice shoe. That was the thing. I feel like I um. I don't know there's kind of a i like to hold on to some of those american clothing mm-hmm. items or like the cowboy hat for instance i really wish i could yeah. rock one i can't or at least i haven't found the right hat but i love that kind of style i it do is, like it is tough it is tough to not look like an absolute weirdo because i feel like mm-hmm. i am someone i'm someone that owns two western style hats really three. Oh, um <laughs> uh one that i can't really wear anymore because it's vintage and too worn out fair enough but you know you do see like there's a type of guy that wears those hats and you're like i don't want to be that yeah yeah so you got to be so selective when you decide Mm -hmm. today's the day i rock the hat and you know you know me i love that that black felt hat i wear it's nice you know yeah but the, the the occasion has to call for it 100%. Yeah. I also feel like 
It needs to fit the style. You need to be in the in the Bob Dylan realm, not the fedora. Yeah, you don't want to be a fedora man. That's what you no, don't you want. Don't, you don't want to be a fedora man. Yeah, for me at least, I've always wanted to be like, I want people to think, you know, Bob Dylan is walking mm-hmm. down the street, not, you know, someone that listened to a country song. Yes, that, like, that is the range. <laughs> there's... Like, I remember being out West and there were so many things that I was always interested in with the fashion because mm-hmm. I wore boots all the time out West, but I wore like Red Wings, which are like, you know, early 1900s uh, Ranger and Army boots, Yep, which, which you know, is, is Americana, you know, they're, they're made in Michigan and they, they have a very long, interesting history as a company. The Iron Rangers were mining boots originally, I'm yeah. pretty sure, which I think is poignant. I, uh, <laughs> I was working on a, um, I, I was framing a piece that someone had, uh, that a customer had brought into the framing shop where mm-hmm. I work. Um, someone had brought in a portrait of their grandfather in World War One. This, this was an older gentleman, so his grandfather. Wow. In World War One, And I'm fairly certain by the photographs, we are we- we are both wearing red wing iron rangers what yeah, that's pretty crazy honestly. yeah, it was i we're weirdly mine are more beat up <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, but also like you know when we'd go like into you know like the flat part of Montana uh-huh. to you know do stuff out there, like I show up in my Chelsea boots and my rm williams you know i'm not wearing mm. cowboy boots i'm like Aussie i'm boots. out there i'm ready to you know tromp around in the dust and the dirt and stuff but like you know i'm 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 dressed more to try to signal in a weird way you know in, in the yeah. way that we code ourselves with our with our fashion choices it's absolutely because like, i'm walking around there in <laughs> in my australian Quasi fashion, quasi uh, stockman, Chelsea boots, you know, that you could kind of picture one of the Beatles wearing. Yeah. And, you know, other people have like the big fat square toe cowboy mm-hmm. boot. Yeah. I don't know. I like the Aussie cowboy boot a lot better, the RM Williams, yeah. but that's just me. That's my mm-hmm. style. And I think it just kind of depends. I get kind of a weird mix and being in the northeast for so long mm-hmm. where you're getting this like very vintage hiker if you go north and the farther right. south and right. urban you get it's way more streetwear it's way mm-hmm. more um athletic like athleisure if you will mm-hmm. yeah and it, it's totally i think affected my wardrobe where one mm-hmm. day i'm out in almost looking like a modern victorian like gentlemen right like I, I take what's my twist without sideburns right so i have my hair tied back you know my long coat rm williams jeans and then the other day i'm wearing you know adidas track pants with my stan smiths and like a sweatshirt and i right. try to i try to navigate in between that you know one of my impressions like in college that oh you know people in different parts of the country really do dress differently was that uh two of my friends came to visit me from boston this is when uh-huh. i was still living in montana and we went to an art opening oh and they you know put on some nice stuff we go out and i remember you know my friend angela leans into me and she's like why is everyone here dressed like they're about to go on a hike 
<laughs> and you yeah. know it's true because it's like well it, w- it was two things one we're in montana two yeah. it was a ceramics opening oh for montana. sure then yeah so everybody is wearing their patagucci patagucci hey man patagucci's pretty great though they're a little you know they're eco-friendly kind of <laughs> yeah eco-friendly kind of it is they're getting you know, better. That, that that little that little bit of neoliberal allowance you can kind of give yourself. Yeah. You know. Accurate. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of things that fill us with pride and shame, Americana. <laughs> yeah. So what do we got yeah. going on here? So this is our installation um for Thanksgiving. And oh. each you'll see there are a lot of tables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's say, you know, uh, a if you come over here, you can swipe oh, through okay. this tablet uh, to see all oh. of the tables. Uh, this the uh, you can see here a tab array of the tables. Um, oh, okay. On the tablet, and hmm. um, what you're looking at on each of these is an example from different years of what a Thanksgiving dinner at the table would have looked like. Oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the first one here, where I think what we would call, you know, the quote-unquote first Thanksgiving uh, from sure. 1621 on the Plymouth Plantation, uh, you'll see there's a lot of corn and eel. Now, I, I'm seeing the corn. The eel is very surprising to me. Now, that wasn't in the Charlie Brown specials, Zan. No, no. <laughs> um (laughs) (laughs) but eel they really that's really the accurate food yeah um eel was uh, a big part of the traditional farming and uh and hunting of massachusetts pre european colonization eels would also have been Hmm. buried in the ground to fertilize the ground to help with growing oh Huh, so that's interesting. we're all vaguely familiar with the 1621 Plymouth Plantation Thanksgiving. I think that's probably the one that most of us learn about in elementary yeah. school. And then we never really revisit again, you yeah. know, unless you take like maybe AP American history or something. Yep. Um, <laughs> but uh, harvest festivals in the United States or what would become the United States uh, go back to possibly 1607 so oh, wow. even a little earlier in jamestown virginia it's in 1610 that they have uh like kind of the first kind of official thanksgiving dinner but this time of year historically in europe in european cultures and presumably elsewhere has always kind of been a harvest festival. You know, it's Hmm. uh, about the time of year that if you were in agrarian society, you would have really the last harvest of the year before you've kind of got to hunker down for the winter. And it's kind of at that point where you realize whether or not you're going to survive the winter because (laughs) you have harvested all of the food that has to make it through them. For sure. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it. This is not a world where you know we can keep eating oranges through the winter. Uh, no, <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> a lot of grain, uh, a lot of storage. Is, this is a very different world. Mm-hmm, uh, absolutely. And it goes a little bit um, into our first kind of stage of mythologizing 
America to begin with, where, you know, the, the people at that initial Thanksgiving, um, they were 50 settlers, and those 50 settlers were the, uh, were 50 of the 100 people that came over on the Mayflower. Oh, wow. Wait. Yeah, about half of the people that um, had come over on the Mayflower had died. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, these were the survivors. This was a very hard year. And the reason why this one kind of sticks out in history a little bit is that really these people only survived because of the uh, generosity of really the indigenous people. There was... I mean, if you want to talk about, like, survivors, there's also, um, when, when they come to this area, Mm -hmm. the, the land had kind of already suffered quite a bit because the local, uh, tribe had been pretty much obliterated at this point by smallpox. There was only one, uh... Native American from that, uh, from the Patuxet, uh, tribe left named Tisquantum, uh, who, you know, uh, in the, which was, you know, kind of shortened and popularized to Squanto mm. left, like that whole tribe, one person left one individual Jesus. and he helped the pilgrims learn how to grow corn and, uh, to catch eel. Um, and basically helped them have a harvest that would allow them to uh survive uh this was also they were also helped um by uh the wampanoag uh tribe Hmm. that uh also gave them supplies when they saw that they were not going to have enough supplies that had been provided from you know the trip from england right and you know, the, the, the death from smallpox and the colonization, you know, we know where it goes from there. We know that yeah. this does not end well for the indigenous people. Um, but you, you know, are, you kind of have this thought of like, how hard was it to live in this part of the country in the winter? You know, New England winters are famously cold and harsh. For sure. And, you know, when the... Europeans first arrived in New England and really the Americas in general. Um, and when they, I, I, sh- I should stipulate also when they came to colonize, what, not the in, sort of initial discoveries, you know, in the right. uh, through the 1500s, you know, really in the 1600s when they came and when they really started to dig in and you know, very harshly colonized the land, they were really struck by, it really seemed like plentiful, endless food. Yeah. Um, they, they just found forests, you know, of chestnut trees um, and full of game and fish. And what they kind of didn't realize was that this had all been cultivated. Really, they had stumbled upon an enormous garden but to them, it read as wilderness because it was a method of agriculture that was very unfamiliar to them. But the, uh, you know, what what we really recognize more now is that Native Americans had very sophisticated agriculture um, and were not 
you know, sort of living this primitivist hunter-gatherer lifestyle in small clans that we kind of imagine. Right. Um, but, you know, it was not just propaganda that, you know, bolstered this vision. You know, if we can kind of, if we can kind of try to find, you know, what what prompted us to see us as, you know, as Europeans to see the land this way, the remaining inhabitants at that point had already suffered so much from smallpox outbreaks and epidemics that the remnant populations of Native Americans on the East Coast was already kind of fragmentary and a deeply traumatized generation. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so huh. if we want to, without, you know, and I'm, I'm going to say this without trying to sound like an apologist for, you know, European colonialism, uh-huh. But you can imagine this is the this is the uh, indigenous American population that the pilgrims met a which really, if you if you look at it, they're encountering the the fragmentary, deeply traumatized, you know, uh, collapse of a people. Yeah. Know, of multiple peoples. Um in in this area of the of the new world in the, in this you know part of the western hemisphere so this uh immediately kind of like you know the story is being written in a certain slant from the european perspective yes they are finding these perfect immaculate forests that are likened to eden that was a big um you know, thing that people wanted to compare the Americas to was Eden mm-hmm. because, you know, basically they stumbled into a garden and did not necessarily even recognize it as a garden. It was weirdly prophetic that they likened it to Eden, but they did not yeah. see it as a garden. That's interesting. You know, wow, that's actually a really good point. And it's kind of blowing my mind in terms of the embedded mythologies that I even have from, you know, growing mm-hmm. up, especially in the Northeast, like, yeah, that it isn't or it wasn't this wilderness. It wasn't this uncharted land. It might have been to them, right, to this, yeah. like, ignorant mindset of going into a new a new world to completely mm-hmm. use it. I mean, for the sake of the pilgrims, it's to escape and make their own world. Right. Yeah. But that this new or i guess this more complex version of agriculture that is yeah unknown to this group of people would be just mm-hmm. completely lost on them well there was very, you know uh, you've heard of the the three sisters uh i don't think i have so the three sisters was um this agriculture method where you know you would grow um you would grow squash, corn, and beans all together, basically mm. in the same field. You know, this being a uh, you know fairly common uh, Native American uh, agricultural practice. Right. The, you know, the beans are able to you know fix uh, nitrogen in the soil. Uh huh. You know, when we had the dust bowl, one of the big pushes was to to try and solve the dust bowl. You know, we're talking hundreds of years later, was to plant mm. beans. 
Oh, wow. Um, and to rotate crops. Um, yeah. Because if you grow the same crop and only one crop on the same land, plenty of farmers will tell you after a couple of rotations, that soil is pretty depleted. Yeah, um, that's... But in kind of a time before we recognized that science, um, and I, I say we, I guess, as Western culture, you know, that was a fairly established way to basically maintain a quasi-ecosystem around your food so hmm. that, you know, you are getting three foodstuffs out of one um, parcel of land that you have cultivated, the, the squash, the beans, and the corn. You know, the vines can grow up the stalks of corn. Um, you're, they, they're provides, uh, there's ground cover and taller uh, foliage. You know, they're not, right. they grow together rather than competing with each other. So it's a very, very uh, fascinating and important agricultural development that was not really, that was, you know, when, when, the, when the settlers arrived, I think they were grateful to have it. But, you know, as America moved on and sort of rewrote it, I think we left behind until we sort of realized the significance of that later on in the Dust Bowl. Um, yeah basically you know as new england becomes more and more populated the native americans are either killed pushed out or assimilated you you, you have to look back on history and realize kind of there was very early on in the conception of the 13 colonies and the beginnings of what we think of as america there was kind of already quickly an idea of New England is full. We got to move. We got to keep moving. Mm. And, you know, if, if you've been to New England, you know there is lots of wilderness yeah. um, and farmland. But already in like, you know, the, in the 17 and 1800s, there was already some concept of this land is over farmed and this area is overcrowded, you know? Wow. And this is like, you know, this is pre-skyscrapers, you know? Jesus. It's not, like, it's not like they were glimpsing, uh, you know, a modern New York, Boston, or Philadelphia megalopolis. I mean, I wonder, I wonder it too, if it's, if it's tied to the idea of the European or Eurocentric plan of building out versus up mm. due to the geography in a lot of these different areas. And I, I wonder yeah. if too, like, especially those who came from England, given it's an island and now you're on this massive continent, or I guess they wouldn't necessarily have known mm -hmm. yet, but, well, maybe, but you know, I wonder if it is just, it becomes a land grab where it's, oh my yeah. gosh, there's so much land here. There's so much available, yeah. you know, even having one neighbor next to you is too much. That's too many people. We need the open yeah. space. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things, I think. Um, you have, it, it, you know, if you look at, like, early maps of what they were planning on mm -hmm. laying claim to, it's almost kind of funny. Uh, it, it's, it's humorous in a weird way, looking at the shapes that they thought the states were going to go. And you see it huh. a little bit. You can see remnants of this if you look at the outlines of, like, uh, the Carolinas and... Uh, oh, Georgia, wow. Massachusetts, those very uh, boxy East Coast states where you see the intent was we have settled the shoreline. Now we're going to move inland. And right. basically we're, we're going to pick two lines of latitude 
and just <laughs> continue the state from there. Oh, like, wow. Could, if you could kind of imagine, like, if that plan had continued, you know, imagine a, a North Carolina stretching across the, a belt of the United States, you know? Jesus. If you want to kind of imagine it, that we would sort of have these rows of states. I mean, I don't really think that's what they were envisioning. It probably would have, you know, ended at the Appalachians, but, right. um, you know, you can kind of picture what they were planning. Still interesting. The other thing that uh, has been kind of remarked upon, especially for New England and the 13 colonies, particularly in the Northeast, was how they were culturally and religiously different from the other colonies being set up by Europe and the Americas. And a lot has kind of been made of this as to why the American colonies that become the United States worked the way they did. And it has a little bit to do with Protestantism versus Catholicism. Mm. Yes. Yes. And I know you have lots of thoughts on Protestantism versus Catholicism. And it's one of my favorite things about you, honestly. Oh? (laughs) 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 Okay. You know, I want it. I want it on the record for our museum guests that, Mm -hmm. you know, little Joe over here is, you know, a you know, a secular, woke, you know, Gen Z, millennial, whatever, as much (laughs) as the rest of us. And yet he refers to Protestants as Protestants and Catholics as Christians. So you really know he's, you know, he's, he's, that that Joe's is short for Joseph. No, I am not the carpenter father of Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) As I tell everybody who tells me that. No, well, I think it's an important difference that is overlooked all of the time. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think namely it's forgotten in Mm -hmm. our um, public school system because Mm -hmm. they don't really cover that aspect of American history where Mm -hmm. the pilgrims are escaping persecution because Europe's at war with itself over Mm -hmm. Protestants versus Catholics for a long time. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it shakes that area and all of those nations. But, I mean, I think it's kind of my main theory on why American morals and you know, conforming and everything else is tied Mm -hmm. to Protestant beliefs versus Catholic ones. Well, which is what I kind of wanted to talk about. Yeah. If you look at a, one of the things that, um, when I, when I took, uh, American art history, one of the things we really looked at was the architecture of Mm. basically, you know, kind of the, the Southern, the more Southern Catholic colonies, and, you know, basically, for those communities, they set up, what, Catholic churches. Yeah. You know, they do this in um, South America, the American Southwest, Florida, uh, Texas, um, Mexico. This is all, you know, ba- basically this, uh, in, in the way that Spain is, Spain and Portugal are basically trying to build a Catholic world. Yes. You know, 1492 is not just a really painful year for native americans and i do not want to diminish this by you know making some sort of false equivalency but 1492 Uh is also the year of expulsion of basically everyone out of spain that wasn't catholic and you know what that was a 
lot of Sephardic Jews and Muslims that had called Spain their homes for centuries at that point. Mm-hmm. Over, no, over over millennia at yeah. that point. Yeah, no, it was for a really long time. It's the beginning yeah. of the Inquisition. Yeah, um, so 1492 is the start of this Spanish project. But if you look at the way that Catholicism is kind of structured, it's very hierarchical, yes? Y- you yes. know, there's... There's always someone above you, mm-hmm. you know, um, until I guess you get to the Pope, which is, I guess, what? Who's above him? God? God. Yeah. Right. Although the Pope, yeah, because the Pope speaks for God and then the Cardinals help the Pope and then the priests help the yeah. Cardinals. It's a whole thing. But basically the yeah. Roman Catholic order. That's why it's called that. Yes. So when you go into a Catholic church, mm-hmm. um, really any Catholic church, but, you know, if we're going to be talking about, you know, this time period of. Uh, the 16, 1700s, they're very directional. You know, everybody yeah. seats, everybody sits together and faces one way. Power is very clearly linear. Mm-hmm. If you go into a New England meeting house, and some of these still exist, everybody's got kind of their own box that they sit in. You know, hmm. the, the meeting houses are much more compartmentalized. And I think this is um, already the beginnings of American individualism. Interesting. And yeah. I think this is in some way a descendant of those Protestant ideals. The, you know, the mm-hmm. weird thing about them is the pilgrims would have seen themselves as different people than the Puritans. They're all Calvinists, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Think? So, you know, you think you sit down at the thanks at one of these early Thanksgiving dinners and you think, oh, well, you know, we're all vaguely the same religion. Like, no, <laughs> never, never mind, like trying to explain to different Protestants, like imagine explaining to someone who like what the difference between these different types of Calvinists, you know, that that's, <sighs> uh, Catholicism and Protestantism can get a little you know you can get into the weeds enough like trying to explain why these are different religions yeah. um i think i mean to me there are some fundamental philosophical uh differences but yes. that comes with you know at this point most of my life of looking at you know christian european paintings <laughs> sure <laughs> um, yeah exactly um and yet, and yet they, they mm-hmm. separate themselves. They define themselves and, and therefore separate themselves into more and more communities. Like, if you look at the setup of the, the, the English colonies, they're all competing with each other. They mm. all saw themselves as different kind of independent entities, which is what leads to, you know, it not being one country, that it's even 13 different states to begin with, you know? Each yeah. one had its own government. Each one was kind of settled by um, different people for different reasons. You know, the all the Catholics get in Maryland. Uh, the kind of more uh, impoverished Scotch-Irish people go to Appalachia for the uh, agriculture and later coal mining jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the people came for different reasons and saw themselves as distinct and yet also americans like you could kind of go anywhere and you still see this today you know you can go to different regions of the united states that will 
you know, basically plant a flag and say, this is the real America, you know, whether yep. that's kind of a historical idea of like Philadelphia, you know, kind of mm-hmm. the birthplace of the idea of our country. Or if you go to uh, Texas or you go to California or Colorado or, you know, just kind of these different regions that have a very different idea of what the quote unquote real America is. Um, but I mean, I think, I think it, we, we kind of have to start with Thanksgiving mm-hmm. because it is a kind of crucial part in what is in, uh, in American settler colonialism. Um, and settler colonialism is as a concept, all this basically means, and this is not specific to, uh, the United States, but settler colonialism is basically a population that comes into an area and kind of has to set up its own mythology to kind of, because there is no ancient tradition tying you to that land, you kind of have to, you know, this is different from an immigrant. An immigrant comes in to a country and is at the mercy of two sets of rules. The immigrant is at the mercy of the rules of the country that it has immigrated into and it is also bound by the traditions that they are coming from. You know? Right, exactly. Settler colonialists come in and say, we are the law. We yep. are the establishment, and we have to kind of come up with our own mythology uh, to justify this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so like I was saying, you know, the, the Thanksgiving festival had predated that initial 1621 uh, instance and kind of continued... Um, Typically, you know, around this time of uh, between September and November, nobody's really sure when the first one happened. We think it's in, right. somewhere in that window. But basically, the, the, the practice continues. It is not made into an official national holiday um, until kind of later. I mean, fairly early on, like in 1777, the... There was the first national proclamation of Thanksgiving from George Washington. Oh, okay. you know, so kind of huh. right off the bat, we want to give thanks. You know, right. this is a a fairly, you know, this is a very religious population, and uh, you know, it, with as much Enlightenment ideals as we are founding the country, there there, there is a lot of religion uh, playing into this. In 1865, Lincoln makes it a national holiday, and, you know, oh, sorry, uh, 1863, um, Mm -hmm. and you can only imagine in the 1860s why we might have some want of a national holiday that might unite us in our idea of ourselves. I can maybe think of one or two. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, a civil war just happened, so I imagine yeah. you're getting that birth of a holiday or a national holiday, right, to unite the country. And then I think yeah. it's also important to know who becomes the enemy right after. Yes. Because I think, yeah, I I would agree that American individualism is really stemming and starting from the beginning settler colonialism in the original colonies and this kind of idea of where each individual will place themselves and the religion that they follow and the, the denomination of, of uh, their faith that they kind of attach to. However, I also think later on when you get to the civil war, 
and there is still a split. And it's not really fixed because mm-hmm. the South loses and that's it, right? It's the North mm-hmm. wins. The country's united. Let's get some order back. And then the way that they go about that is to, you know, declare both war and perform genocide on the indigenous peoples of the mm-hmm. United States, which, mm-hmm. you know, is pretty horrific and awful. Mm-hmm. And that is widely ignored, I feel like, even yeah. today with how much information we have on that. And I think it's a bit uncomfortable when you get into Thanksgiving and there's sort of that mythology coded into our beliefs of the country where, oh, you know, pilgrims and Native Americans sat down and they shared a meal and then there's this kind of happy tale. But Mm -hmm. that's really not the history later on. And it's it's widely ignored and and thrown away. Very much so. Yeah. And and now we're getting this I think a lot of people are starting to realize that, um, especially younger generations. And as they as people learn things and, and research and being like, hey, this is like not OK mm-hmm. and we need to start addressing some things. But you see a pushback too, where people, oh, well, that was how it was. That's the old days. It's fine. This is how mm-hmm. we are as Americans. And there's just this this want to not accept the history of a holiday, because yeah. if you think about it, too, what comes after Thanksgiving? Black Friday. Black, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where you're getting, you know, no, well, just for dramatic effect, right? Yeah. But where you're getting this consumerist holiday that leads yeah. right into Christmas, which is a mm-hmm. whole nother talking point of American holidays that yeah. starts in a religious element and then becomes something else. It becomes yeah. a product of capitalism. Because even, mm-hmm. I think, with thanks with Thanksgiving, you can get the religious undertones right the last supper Mm -hmm. something similar this idea of sharing a meal with you know everybody and then how that gets stripped down and changed and molded into something totally different where then you're getting it just means something else i think even today yeah i i'm very torn about this because on the one hand i think in concept thanksgiving you know, because if you want to look at it, it doesn't necessarily have to do anything with the pilgrims. Right. You know, we, we don't have to necessarily tie that idea to them. Mm-hmm. And, and really, the, the whole idea kind of even happened at that time of year is that, you know, this was also kind of associated with um, the Feast of St. Michael or yeah. Michael Mess. And, you know, that's probably what they were celebrating. And, like, I think it's a good idea for a holiday that there is at least in contemporary culture there is a holiday that is not necessarily bound to any one religion yeah that is a day of being thankful for what we have and the the difficulty is reckoning with the undertones of ownership Mm -hmm. that uh are felt over this land Yes. And also the, um, you know, the, the history of it. And I think also, you know, Thanksgiving now, honestly, is more synonymous with having to sit down with our conservative relatives and, you know, kind of being made to be quiet and and to feel, you know, uncomfortable, like you've been taken away mm-hmm. from your, you know, your friends, your found family, and now you have to sit and listen to what whatever your racist uncle has to say about, you know, Black Lives Matter. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's difficult uh, to, to 
figure out exactly how I feel about it because I do I I I do think there is good and genuine intent in it. Uh, yeah, I and I, I, I can I can look at it from the historical context of the need for a uniquely American holiday that is about you know our trying trying to unify us in our sense of being separated as well. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Lincoln makes it you know the national holiday, uh, and he just picks the last Thursday of the month. Yeah. And it was kind of every president's job to declare Thanksgiving every year. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was almost always the fourth Thursday. And huh. then FDR has to standardize it and kind of regulate the date because that particular year there were five thanks there were five Thursdays. Oh. Um <laughs> <laughs> Oof. So, you know, it um it it remained a part of our national identity and our mm-hmm. Post-Civil War, and as we sort of looked back on Manifest Destiny, if we're looking at that consumer culture that, you know, pops up in the Gilded Age and, you know, has has its big surge in the 20th century, you know, mid-century era, um, you know, all, all of our ideas of the big holidays at the end of the year, right? Halloween, yeah. Thanksgiving, and Christmas— all of this has very specifically New England imagery, and that is mm-hmm. kind of deliberate. As we oh. build the mythology, yeah, as we build the mythology of America, we make it all look like New England, even though at this point America has spread far beyond that, you know? So that someone in the South is, you know, going to be celebrating Christmas with, you know, an evergreen tree brought into their house even though, you know, the, there's, there's no snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all of the imagery, when you think about how big the United States is, and yet we have very specific regional ideas of what our holidays look like, mm-hmm. you can kind of see that, oh, all of our, all of our, Im- uh, th- this is what I picture when I picture these yeah. holidays in my mind, whether it's on a greeting card you know, like all all of this stuff existed, you know, kind of what we would think of as a long time ago, like these uh, holiday cards and uh, advertisements that that marketed to us oh, yeah. a, a New England Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Well, I think I think too, you're getting the need for an origin story as yeah. you move out west because the West gets its own mythology i think attached to it too and a separation yeah. from that and then i think later on when you look when i guess enough years go by you're seeing yeah. you know the pilgrim story you're seeing the revolution everything that's happening in the 13 colonies and the call for that to be the standard of american history i mean i grew yeah. up right outside of philadelphia yeah going to see the liberty bell going to see all of these different things um yeah ben franklin museum all kinds of stuff is super yeah i think important and and even for me i didn't really realize it that yeah. not everybody gets to do that right you know i yeah. live in one of the original colonies yeah. and you know always having to deal with the kind of connotation of what that means but yeah you know there is a difference and there is like i i guess if i have to transport if we're going to transport ourselves to the past right mm-hmm. i 
think of this as if this was the 18, let's say 70s, let's round up a little bit, you know, Philadelphia would have been pretty modern and right in the boom of the Industrial Revolution. This would have been starting to kick off, be, yeah. um, you know, the trains coming in, almost electricity, not quite yet, you know, coal yeah. everywhere, totally urban industrial city. If you were to go west, it's a frontier. It would be like, a, no, yeah. I, don't, I dare to say wasteland, maybe in the deserts, but open, open territory that I think Americans were looking at as, you know, manifest destiny to go out and then claim because there's yeah. this push of the cities and the urbanization and modernization that's scaring people away. Yeah. And I think if we're going to talk about American mythology and, and even just tying it back to Thanksgiving, I think it's kind of hard to not ignore the cowboy, right? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's hard. It's hard to not. Yeah, it's, it's hard to get much more American Americana <laughs> imagery than that. Yeah, because I think I think, too, you know, it, just like we have New England as the standard for holidays, I think the American cowboy is the um, is the label right the denim jackets right. the the cowboy boots like we were mentioning earlier that is the idea the construct mm -hmm. of what an american should be the individual alone out west exploring right, right. the lone ranger kind of figment and mm -hmm. i think you see that starting to happen particularly in in the beginning of like motion pictures of, of the creation of motion pictures with Edison actually. And one thing in particular, hmm. I didn't, I didn't really know until recently was that when you're getting cowboy films starting to happen, which was the first one's like the great train robbery and it's about 10 minutes. And that set the standard. That was the first imagery <laughs> you're getting of what an we American cowboy looks like. Train robbery. Yeah, exactly. And it was a silent film and it's under like Edison productions, but that said it that was the standard the you know white ranger bandit slash uh, good guy versus bad guy cowboy shoot off guns blazing the, the one famous scene in that is is the um the one gunslinger pointing the gun at the audience and then shooting and that is you know a very very influential scene of cinema history that appears in goodfellas it appears in other movies mm -hmm. and so with that too I think it's important to note when the the Western film genre is coming out, Birth of a Nation is also coming out. Right. I and that's like sit with that for a minute. If you think about it, where you're getting these white heroes, right? These mm -hmm. the true Americans that are actually taking back the country. And at the same time, you're getting this other genre of film that's kind of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think the depiction of the American cowboy slash gunslinger really comes from that history. And it's not even accurate. It's totally fictitious. It's right to, to say that the American cowboy was actually, you know, this gunslinger that's out there and they're doing all kinds of fun and bad mm -hmm. things is, is just not correct. I mean, even, you know, one statistic to keep in mind that one in four cowboys in the, in the United States during this time period were black. And that's yeah. really where this culture starts and where it's coming from. Well, a good... also, also many being indigenous, many yes. being Mexican. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, no, I mean, you just look at a map of the United States, you know, a good amount of our, you know, the, the states that aren't mispronunciations of Native American words are, yeah. most of the rest are mispronunciations of Spanish words. Exactly. You know, color rojo. Mm -hmm. Colorado, Montana, yeah. Montana. 
Exactly. Exactly. And um, and the list the list goes on. Absolutely. And I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind. And especially when going back and watching some of these Western films, one in particular I'm going to recommend to our our tour here is to go and watch Wildcat by Khalil Joseph. And it's the seven minute short film that's depicting the um, the current day cowboys in Grayson, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. and specifically the black community surrounding that. And the mm-hmm. the way that that approaches American mythology versus something with John Wayne in it, it's a beautiful film. It's a hundred percent worth a watch. I think it's important now more than ever. And even you know you're getting more recent films mm-hmm. that'll be coming out, like Con- I think Concrete Cowboy, which takes place in Philadelphia about the the urban cowboy and other things yeah. where the the genre is coming back, but it's changing. But I want to yeah. I want to take a minute to talk about the old genres too where you're getting the the high of john wayne films right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i one in particular which is this is the end of this western era uh, in filmmaking that is well america the end of the american western genre in the 50s which kind of ended on john ford's famous you know magnum opus um the searchers Mm-hmm. which I'm going to have to preface this film because uh, first of all, yeah, it's a product of its time and that's, it's important to note. It's an interesting experience watching it and kind of noting the brown face, the, mm-hmm. you know, white savior complex that for sure is in there and other things and who this history is depicting. Yeah. But also giving it credit where credit's due, which is pointing out, the racism in America, even at that time, the kind Mm -hmm. of stupidity and almost mockery of the United States army in which at that point was, you know, committing genocide, the Calvary at least was committing genocide of of Mm -hmm. native peoples. And, you know, this idea of the modern world catching up to the frontier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, throughout the movie, you have John Wayne as the main character who is this ex-Confederate, you know, mm-hmm. returning home three years after the Civil War. He basically committed a crime, so he's a felon mm-hmm. because he stole money from a bank, which is alluded to. And he just mm-hmm. goes on this rampage when the plot that's kind of driving the movie is that the uh, a, a roaming war tribe of Comanche killed his family, the family mm-hmm. that he was returning to. And him and his... They're not even necessarily related, but I guess it'd be like his nephew, Martin, is... You know, they're on the the search to find his niece that was taken. And mm-hmm. Martin is depicted as a as a part Cherokee and then part, you know, white character who, of course, is in brownface because, you know, and <laughs> yeah, because in this film, too, you have, you know, white Anglo-Saxons playing Native Americans and also some Navajo peoples incorporated into the film as well. Yeah, which I, I thought mean, was I mean, interesting that. That that bizarre casting choice where you know it just yeah. did not occur to anybody. Like no, like you even watch you even watch the first Indiana Jones and you see the guy yeah. with prosthetic eyelids on to make him look like he's yes, from Nepal. Exactly. And you're just like, you really couldn't just like like even in the eighties, like I, I like you couldn't just find an Asian guy. I know wandering it's... around because we it's California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I don't understand. Well, I mean, I do understand. I just don't like it, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you're kind of have that throughout the film. But you know, 
in John in the old John Wayne movies, you know, through the forties and, and whatnot, he's always this American hero cowboy. He's the mm-hmm. the the gunslinger who is bad, but he's helping people and he's the everyday person, right? You always yeah. have because in a lot of these Western movies, specifically Fords, it's always the rich people are the bad guys from the city, and the good guys are the people who are living on the frontier and living this hard life. Yeah. Which is an interesting kind of, I think, point to make about American ideals and, yeah. and lifestyles during the time. But in this, it's the opposite. He is a racist, a yeah. greedy person, a horrible person who just wants to kill. He, he literally is tra- mm-hmm. he's tracking down his niece to kill her. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. she's been like, oh, he assumes violated, so he ha- he tainted, and he has to kill her because that's the only sane thing to do. Uh huh. Okay. And you're looking at it, and you're like, Jesus Christ! Yeah. Like this is brutal. It's a brutal uh-huh. film, and this is like a massive wide release. This is a huge yeah. movie, and, and I'm and I have to kind of remind myself when I'm thinking about it. I'm saying this is the audience that is watching this is going to get a very different picture, and I think it yeah. was um, an attempt to i think explain some of the wrongness of american mythology out west where it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily the grandiose narrative that's always painted where it's the it's the frontier and it's the people out there trying to make a living and you know the native americans were the bad guys attacking everybody and of course hollywood made out this whole fictitious idea of cowboys versus indians which is just yeah. a not correct and be not exactly <laughs> sensitive either so and it's always something no. i think i get heated no, it's, over. Al- it's always you know uh positioned as custer's last stand exactly know, that that type of that type of battle where you know they're somewhat evenly matched and the native yeah. americans are the aggressors and you know exactly that, that, all that whole malarkey you know but the thing is as westerns go on mm-hmm and as they, you know, kind of stop being like the big sweeping grand epics, you know, yeah. and really in the 60s and 70s where they kind of they start being made on cheaper budgets. But you do have an interesting sense in Westerns that at least po- after the kind of the period you're talking about. Yeah, that. But I, but not necessarily contemporary either. Mm-hmm. Westerns always kind of posit that the West is lost. That yes. there was something good and pure here. And, you know, whether it's through an environmental lens or a morality lens or something, that the people came in and corrupted it. Mm-hmm. But then there's always that other step. There's always that thing that the wild, free scoundrels that roam this land are then themselves commodified. And yeah. then and then even if they aren't good people, now they're mm-hmm. not even free. And that 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 is that is kind of the tension that I think you get from a lot of Westerns kind of sixties onward mm-hmm. that the West was lost. If I may add to mm-hmm. that, because it leads immediately into something that I've been thinking about for quite a while. Oh. It, I, I, would, I would agree. I would agree 100% on that idea. And that's kind mm-hmm. of what happens, especially when the, the movie industry moves away from 
it, the movie industry in America, let's say, also moves away and it goes to, of course, Italy for spaghetti westerns and kind of these more yeah. low budget films that are clear, honestly they get a bit better, right? Yeah, even in, even in techniques, well, they're just more interesting. About people that did less with more, or more with less. Exactly, exactly. And one thing to bring up with that too, it's funny because the American people got bored of the western film because it was mm-hmm. it was almost like a King Arthur style story every single very time tropey. Very, very tropey very tropey very tropey very good guy good cowboy get girl goes fight bad guy you know yeah. it, you could apply that with a knight's tale some sort of medieval story and it would be the same yeah but one thing that's been on my mind and it comes up a lot is sort of you know I, i'm a gamer you know this you know i like the video <laughs> game oh you game all. I, wait, do, wait, I do, I do, I mean, I do, do game. Do you have a do you have a big swivel uh chair? Do you have a mechanical keyboard? Well, I'm not a I'm not a PC master ace kind of guy. I'm a I'm a uh you know an <laughs> Xbox person, you know, because I'm not shelling out three grand for PC. I don't even like the system. But you call yourself a gamer. I know I'm not I just you know, let gamers <laughs> be gamers. I play Minecraft. Okay. I just want to chill. But so so you know, back in back in uh, almost 2008, 2009 uh red dead redemption came out which is by rockstar games and it's the same company that made grand theft auto and the entire game is taking place in the american west but at the end of the west it's it's actually during 1911 which isn't really explained until the end which um Mm -hmm. i always thought was weird because when you think of the west you think like 1870s right at least i do where it's sort of the end of the civil war but we haven't moved into the modern age yet so everything's still kind of crazy i think for me i Mm -hmm. think of it as slightly more recent just because living in montana at least there's enough stuff that's kind of freshly left around like like, uh, one of my professors had lived in you know he was born in 1944 he's lived in bozeman you know, most of his life. And he would talk about how, you know, people want to complain about Bozeman not being a Mm. real cowboy town anymore. And for him, Bozeman hasn't been a cowboy town, you know, since like the 50s. Wow, yeah. Um, You know, which is, on, on the one hand, is far enough back that like, you know, middle aged guys in camo jackets and baseball hats that you know go mudding on their atvs don't really have anything to talk about yeah you know yeah it's like it's been a college town since then gotcha but is also recent enough that you know there there was sort of that delay you were talking about about Mm -hmm. uh society having to catch back up to the west in contemporary times like because i living and working in bozeman you know we when i worked at the watch repair shop you know you would be you would get in a lot of people's grandfather's railroad watches oh wow yeah and you know a lot of those you know men carried pocket watches until world war one yeah you know it's it's not really until world war one and onwards that men specifically wear wristwatches until then that would have kind of been a a ladies fashion choice Mm. but like you have these railroad watches that were made in the early 1900s you know as late as the 20s that were regulation standard you know they had to 
meet a lot of qualifications before they could be considered a railroad watch. So Mm. they have these very bold, graphic, you know, early 1900s uh, lettering and numbers on them. Like, these very, like, you know, um, I don't think... Just the script of the numbers, I don't think, is what people picture when they picture the Wild West. And yet these were the tools being used by the people out there, this... A uh, very refined and practical mm-hmm. piece of equipment, you know, used until quite recently. Exactly. I mean, I don't necessarily, you know, that's something I didn't know, especially mm-hmm. not living out west, only visiting once, right, in Arizona yeah. at that, where it's, I, I just don't think it's rep, it was always kind of explained. I think it, for yeah, yeah, no, there there, there was mm-hmm. some vague idea you know yeah exactly and like with this game the thing that always left me questioning and that's kind of the point of it too Mm -hmm. is the shadow of modernity coming in and kind of closing the gap of the west yeah but because you're playing as well in the first one you're playing as john marston who's of course the he's on his path of redemption he was part of a gang and the fbi at the or the early kind of fbi is basically tasking him with Mm -hmm. hey we're gonna put you in jail and your family in jail unless you go capture and or kill your old gang members right and he's and he's at this point trying to lead a good life he got out of the Mm -hmm. gang and and i'm gonna fast forward to the second one which came out in uh, 2018 so rather recently after a long time where you're mm-hmm. seeing that reasoning for him having to do this and yeah. the time it, i think it's a couple years earlier so it's really at the end of the 1800s but this is really where the a uh, kind of american western conquest of the cities are starting to come in where mm. you're getting trains, you're getting industrialization. A lot of these small towns are being built with the same materials used in Philadelphia, used in New York. The yeah. fashion choices are coming in. And you're playing in this gang that is trying so hard to maintain their lifestyle, where the the main you know gang leader, Dutch, is, of course, monologuing about this great plan to go and build this almost cult-like town where they're going to be a a community and they're going to live off the land and then they're going to participate. And he just kind of falls into chaos and is promising this idea. He keeps promising that they're going to be safe, but they have to do one more steal. We're going to, the plan's going to happen. We just have to have this one more hit. And of course they just keep getting more. You son of a bitch. I'm in. Exactly. And then it just, it it falls down. And of course you're playing with this ragtag team of people, totally diverse from all different backgrounds. who are bringing, you know, they're all connected by this idea of the frontier being a yeah. hard life and kind of for everybody, whether it be, yeah. you know, black, white, Native American, mm-hmm. um, male or female. And the enemy in the game is industrialization. It's big government. And mm. I think, you know, when I when I was playing the game, I was totally captivated. And you're captivated with the amazing graphics of the frontier, the immersion. And I think there's just like a tension that happens and that tension is this is going to disappear this was not long ago and also you know you're seeing firsthand some of these genocides some of these events that are horrific and you're seeing who Mm -hmm. did them and it's and Mm -hmm. and it's something to kind of sit with and i think you know internationally i don't know if the game is as well received because people don't necessarily understand um Mm -hmm. or it's not that i guess it's not that they don't understand it's that they don't have that attachment because right. for me, and I think for you as well, and, and really for anybody living in the States, 
whether we like it or not, it's embedded. If you if you've grown up here, this idea yeah. of the American culture coming from the West and the mythology behind it, and this you know opportunity and the loss of the West, like you said, where it was always like looking back at a bygone era where people could be free and do this, and it yeah. they never really were. It was a it was a yeah, threatening no, place. It was, it was kind of. I mean, I think that's sort of like if you do want to still look at it in a romantic lens, that's yeah. the folly of the whole thing. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, everybody had this idea that we, if we just go out west and mm-hmm. we make it on our own, um, we can just we can do everything right this time. Exactly. The people in New England and in the South, they are too cynical. They're too overbuilt we just need to get out there strip it all away and you know we can rebuild something else and something something pure and free and yet when when they do that you know through manifest destiny and through you know killing the inhabitants whether they're aware of it or not you know the you know the, the the entire project of moving west involved deliberately slaughtering millions of bison so that the yeah. native americans would starve and and to make the trains run you know exactly i i god what is it with people and trying to make trains run on time they always keep doing things wrong you know <laughs> mussolini oh yeah i was just gonna the say americans um Jesus. but but they they do not see the folly of it Mm-mm. from the start that you're trying to make something new and yet you do not want to look at where you're coming from and what you're doing with that. You know, the, yeah. I mean, if you are in the Mormon sphere, yeah. You know, the God gave you Utah, you know? Yeah. And that it was not, it, you know, it was not uncommon that, someone would go out west with the intent of let's just make a new society that's independent um and that just overlooked so much of history and their own implicit bias yes you know i agree yeah it's there there are just so many paintings from you know that era whether they're you know coming out of like the hudson valley school of painters that you know show the idea Mm-hmm. that we need to keep moving west that we need to keep growing the american project and the american experiment but in growing this mythology you know you realize like it does kind of feel empty at the end of the day yeah i recently saw a talk um that shane doyle uh is a, a crow uh tribes member and he was talking about all of us kind of being in this together. I mean, he does not, he certainly, you know, does not overlook uh, the the aspect of, mm. you know, genocide and uh, the, the colonial intent of the Americas. But he, right. he did make a statement that I found kind of interesting and I've been chewing on for a while now, which is, hmm. um, we are all orphans here in America. That we have lost all of us, whether you are indigenous or not, 
we have all lost touch with our ancient roots. And that is kind of, I guess, what it means to be American, to feel orphaned. We, yeah, like, we're Americans. We, <laughs> we all hate our parents and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and just, we want to be individuals so bad, but we do it yeah. by emulating other people that we think are individuals so we try to copy and mass produce the individual yeah. to somehow be a part of it selling the individual to the community to the collective yeah well because like i mean if anything in my wardrobe looks like a cowboy it's probably because i saw some rock star wearing it yeah and i mean it's yeah yeah it's and and the rock star was just dressed like that because they thought oh that looks rugged individual and cool and i'm a exactly. free will and free thinker you know or yeah in in some cases you know a lot of <laughs> rock stars i guess did grow up watching john wayne yeah um, i mean it's it's again it's tied to that image it's the image of a yeah. nation that's it's totally an illusion it's a it's an illustration and i think What's so embedded in this country's history and mythology, too, is this individualism and this mm -hmm. idea of running away from your mistakes. We're going to start over. We're not yeah. going to fix it. We're going to make <laughs> it different. And they yeah. always, it just, that doesn't work. We can't, yeah. you cannot run away from mistakes. You do need to sit down and yeah. face it eventually. And I think you see it with the yeah. movement West because that was the idea, right? And it caught up. Mm -hmm. And it got worse, <laughs> you know, it, it got significantly <laughs> worse. And it's just, that is the idea. It it couldn't mm -hmm. just stay in the 13 colonies. It couldn't just stay in the home countries. It had to go and completely consume things. Because I also look at, I think it's important with the colonial settle, settling of the Americas is that, you know, mainly too in the beginning, even though, yes, it's, it's to go and um, escape, I guess, religious persecution and whatnot and to form a new continent of religion you also have it as an economic powerhouse you know yeah. england's running out of trees europe's running out of trees the americas have trees they have coal they have minerals different foods resources yeah. and it's seen by i think the people as a land of opportunity and an idea and mm -hmm. by nations as an economic source and i think yeah. the illusion of America as a land of opportunity is collapsing um, well, well within the last couple of years. And I think, I don't know, for the future, it's going to be interesting. How does the mythology change? Does it change? Mm -hmm. Is it rewritten? Is it questioned? I mean, you know, looking at the Thanksgiving Day tables, you can see the difference in the meals, in the way things yeah. are set up, in the furniture, in the cultures that celebrate it. Because I think I've been, I've been thinking about that question you kind of had, you know, the inner conflict within yourself about Thanksgiving as a concept and as this idea of a non-religious holiday that's tied mm -hmm. to just giving thanks. And I think ideally it's very, it's important. And I think it's an interesting idea, right? But mm -hmm. I, I wonder with the ties to its histories and the kind of non-acknowledgement of it, or at least trying to work around it, dance around it. What does that mean? And and can we eventually move into some sort of potential future American celebration for everybody where there is this united holiday that's not in consumerism? It's not based in capitalist thought. It's it's totally for the people, by the people, you know, not to quote that, but still yeah. it is the well, question. You know, the the thing about 
I think right now we are seeing our worst selves yeah. embodied by that individualism and that lack of caring for other people. Absolutely. And maybe that's our individualism at its worst. The, mm. the, the thing is, though, about Americans and I think what at the end of the day I still you know, can appreciate about being American and, you know, I hesitate to say proud, but I think, you know, I, Mm. I kind of can be in some moments, you know, is the idea of there is always, there always has been a subversive culture that is trying to do the right thing here. And they are a product of those ideals you Mm -hmm. know every time we have had a step forward in civil rights and workers rights you know those are people that are being fed the american ideals Mm. and rhetoric and realizing that it hasn't yet applied to this other group of people yeah and expanding it and I think there's been a lot of times in our history where we questioned whether or not the experiment would work. Mm-hmm. Um, and best case scenario, this is another iteration of that where we hopefully learn something new from this. <laughs> um, and that's kind of all I can hope for as an optimistic person, you know, the times that mm-hmm. we are living in. But I, I hesitate to say that any of it is unprecedented, that yeah. we have struggled with being a multi-ethnic country, um, and that we struggle with being on land that was stolen in recent enough history that we we know who it was. Yes. Um, yeah. And their and descendants of those people still do remain and uh and live on in spite of all of that you know Mm -hmm. so i yeah i i (laughs) i can't pretend to always know exactly how to feel about it um Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean mostly i'm kind of just thinking of songs (laughs) that i like that i feel like (laughs) somehow put it into words sometimes i mean there's, there's this song by pierce edens called uh montana oh and okay. there's a couple of like corny lines in it but otherwise like it also kind of i think gets across the frustration of mm. trying to move out west and i think what you're talking about you know bringing yeah. your baggage with you um you know, he says in the song, we can be ha- we can be happy, lonesome and free, you know, and it's it is kind of in vain. Yeah. You know, born in the USA, you know, as as a song by, you know, by, by Bruce Springsteen, you know, and has been misinterpreted as a jingoistic, you know, 80s song on the same level as like, you know. I am a true American by Hulk Hogan. Right. Um, Or lip synced by Hulk Hogan. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that there's an idea that you have a birthright 
to question and you have mm-hmm. a birthright to try to leave things better than you found them. Yeah, absolutely. I think um I think that's a nice thing to end on right there as a because it yeah. really is it's a question. We should all we should we should all feel sobered and ready mm-hmm. to pick back up the work that needs to be done, I think. I agree. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Definitely there is a lot still left to do. But yeah. it is important to kind of, I think, collect thoughts. Yeah, and and real and realize how recent all of this stuff is in our history. And yeah, it's not, you know, it it can't be forgiven, erased, or mm-hmm. you know, written off. I think it just has yeah. to be written in, and I think that's how we start to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, like. This this is going off topic completely, um, and as we're trying to wrap up this tour, but you know something I didn't mention from our last uh, exhibit. Oh, on, what was that? Um, on uh, Ernst Stromer and the. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> Ernst That's Stromer fun. and the Nazi paleontologist. Weird Harry Potter book, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, you know Carl Berlin, Nazi Carl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nazi Carl. Nazi Carl. Oh. I didn't even mention this. You know when he died? Yeah. 1985. What? Yeah. Dude was uh, still publishing stuff into the late 60s. Oh, oh my God. How? Why? I just... <laughs> the man was a Nazi. I don't understand. He, hey, he was a uh, Nazi really good at IDing those clams. I guess. Maybe that was part of, you know, like the Operation Paperclip. Like, you know, we... <laughs> We got those Nazis that we needed for NASA, and then a paleontologist yeah. got through, and they're like, well, shit. Yeah. Although I, th- I think he did. Actually, no, I think he did die in Germany. Oh, the other okay. thing that I forgot huh. to mention was Ernst Stromer's son, the one that was captured, uh, I think Wolfgang, the one that was captured by the Soviets, yeah. was returned to him in 1950. He did live. Oh, And was okay. kept a prisoner. Huh. And then wow. Stromer right. did live to see it, because Stromer died in 1952. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Interesting kind of wrap up to that story as well. Fascinating, yeah. right? May may the American story not end like quite <laughs> like that. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Well, yeah, I think that about does our our tour here on on Thanksgiving and I think, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. you all got your PS5 and Xbox Series X pre-orders or maybe not delivered and I can't exactly picture what black what hell awaits us on the 2020 black friday i you know? it's gonna be <laughs> well it's gonna be great if you're an online person who sells things it's gonna be terrible if you're retail i can i can yeah. say that for certain but hopefully um companies do the right thing in this case mm-hmm. but that's a bit of a stretch i forget i forget who said it maybe it was maybe it was winston churchill another mm-hmm. questionable person yeah who once said america will always do the right thing after it has tried everything else first huh anyways thank you for coming to the uncanny county museum today (laughs) if you uh want to find us after hours at the museum you can find me on instagram at xanasaurus and you can find me at at joe art 
Yes, and hopefully by the time you're hearing this, we will also have our Twitter out there too. Ooh, exciting. And you can also check uh, as soon as I uh, find out what our handle is going to be. Uh, I, we will have that listed on our uh, show information. So, thank you again for coming today. And from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye.